Oh, what are you saying, Alex? Oh, are we staying put here, are we? All right, it's just that there was a, there was a different channel set up. Have you dragged all the paperwork across? Oh, okay, cool. Excellent. This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode... Snug's first virtual conference. It has been um, a, a superb day. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. From a, an information and a kind of getting to see people that I haven't seen for quite a long time. Not quite as good as being in person, unfortunately. It's just the way life is. And this is a, a new opportunity for us in the virtual world that we, we seem to be inhabiting at the moment. And I would urge you all to look at the Snug website and the Snug podcasts. Listen to those. I think that they are great. It's amazing how you get people from all over the country into these calls. We're just seeing we've got Isla from Shetland and Kat from Borders. It's just, just fantastic the way we can bring people together like this. I know, it's great. Hello and welcome to a bumper edition of the Snug Podcast. This is the November 2020 Snug Virtual Conference Review Edition. I'm Andrew McElhinney, a GP and member of the Scottish National Users Group. The reason we exist is to use GP IT systems as well as we possibly can, share information and tips, and also feedback, views and questions from all the users across Scotland to the system suppliers and the people who procure and pay for these systems. Now, 2020 has been different as you all know. For our annual conference, instead of over 200 people converging in a conference centre in a hotel somewhere, it was held via Microsoft Teams, and everyone stayed at home. The first plenary in the programme was from Chris Weatherburn of Skimp, and as well as his very kind shout-out for the podcast, which you heard at the start, Chris gave us a brilliant start to the day. He was introduced by Neil Kelly. Anyway, Chris is a GP in Dundee, and... uh, um, one of the first Scottish graduates from the uh, National Digital Academy, which invariably marks people out as expert in their field uh, and clearly going places, um, which was why they didn't allocate me a place, I imagine. Anyway, Chris, welcome. Thank you very much for um, giving us your time today. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for those kind words, Neil. And um, today I'm going to tell you about data quality in primary care. Firstly, I'll outline why it is important. I'll outline some of the research. And more importantly, I'll give you some recommendations about what can be done about it now. I saw one of the comments was about future in IT. Um, This is not a presentation about the potential future in IT with which I would see artificial intelligence and natural language processing very key in trying to improve data quality. So this is about now, and I'm going to give you some good learning points. Because data is essential for everything we try to do in general practice, improving its quality is in everyone's interests. Chris gave us five main tips for helping us to improve data quality in what was a really interesting talk. CPRD, if your practice signs up, actually do give you excellent, useful tools every so often that will help you improve data quality. 
So, for example, it may... Including some of his own research into data quality, the move to SNOMED CT, some very practical advice on how practices can clarify their own coding procedures and refer to the updated SKIMP read code list. These are my recommendations. So join CPRD, work with the secondary care colleagues as best you can, explore SNOMED CT, decide in your practice what GP should code and obtain the latest SKIMP code list. We also got some tips on identifying a royal stag and how best to transport one if you ever need to. Now you'll see there's a picture of a deer there, two people who had killed a deer and they were trying to drag it by its tail to their car. Now, a farmer who was more experienced came along and said, look, it's easier to pull the deer by the, the antlers. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. And those are good life lessons. Thanks, Chris, for this thought-provoking plenary. We must get you on for a chat about Skim's work in the new year. There were 20 workshops with a variety of different topics covering the whole current landscape of GPIT. These included uh, looking at a tool for safer prescribing of opiates, asynchronous consulting in a practice using Ask My GP, NHS 24 services, script switch, cloud telephony using exchange communication, list team information support for clusters, remote working, DocMan tips, use of near me, and MedLink for chronic disease management online. And there is just no way you will have absorbed all that information and learning from these sessions. There was just so much good content. So if you registered for the conference and have the link to, to the Teams channels, you should be able to access these recordings from any of the workshops right now. If you're a Snug member, and why wouldn't you be? These videos will be made available for you on the Snug website soon to watch again and to get up to speed on whatever is of interest. Today, I thought we would reflect for a few minutes on just two of the most important topics that were discussed on the day, as both of these will affect everyone working in GP practices in a major way over the next few years. One particularly relevant workshop for everyone may have been missed because it was on at the same time as one of the reprovisioning workshops. Maybe the biggest change this year has been the rollout of Teams, the new NHS email system, and Office 365. Now we've all grown up in a digital world where we've been used to having a PC or server where we work and saving information locally. That world has changed. Part of a modern NHS will be using cloud technology and the Office 365 project is very much part of that change. Steve Woods, the Office 365 programme director, introduced the workshop. Good morning everybody. Um, my name's Steve Woods. Let's take a look at where we are with the Microsoft Office 365 Cloud and Computing Program. What we'll cover today, we'll cover the um, national overview, um, we'll cover Teams. We'll also talk you through email and what we've done and Office 365 and what the next chapters are. There are two things here. There is the Office applications, there is data storage, but the key thing I think here is the email change through to MS Exchange Online, NHS.scot, and the use of Teams. So that is the transformation journey we're on, and we'll go through that in the story so far later in the presentation. Shona Reid, the business change lead for the National Cloud and Computing Team, described the very rapid rollout of Teams early in 2020. And as Steve said, we rolled out Office 365 and Teams to approximately 160,000 users over a sort of two-week period in March of this year. Teams is actually part of a much larger suite of applications that are part of Office 365. 
So as Steve alluded to earlier, a big part of that is Outlook. We've also got the Office Online suite, which is great if you're working on the go. And then also we've got the um, the online note-taking tool, OneNote, which is a great way of organising. One of the big things to get used to is the new world of cloud storage, OneDrive and SharePoint. In terms of the cloud storage that was on that earlier diagram, we've got OneDrive, which is your personal storage space in the cloud, which means that anything you store in there, you can access from anywhere on any device. And then we've got SharePoint, which is like your open plan office, which is a collaboration space for teams to work together and to share materials. And there's a lot more to SharePoint than just being sort of document repository. The Office 365 Champion site link is in the podcast episode notes. So I mentioned earlier the Office 365 Champion site. And for the last six months, this has been our main sort of um, connection point with users. And uh, the content is, as you see there, so we have daily tips, success stories, what's working well for people, we've got resources, and we've got a whole resource site of webinars, guidance, Adjusting to your new email address and finding other people has been something for us all to get to grips with. If you haven't been moved already, you will be soon, maybe as part of a mop-up. Total number of uh, health boards in Scotland that uh, we're migrating is 21. Um, 13 of those boards have been migrated and those projects have been closed. Six boards are in mop-up. That is basically any um, stragglers who uh, didn't migrate first time around and picked up in a mop-up. So there's six boards in mop-up and we've got what we call a mop-up of all mop-ups which is basically all the stragglers is uh, 23rd of November with a view to the migrations being completed by the 7th of December and all the projects signed off. Key point is that everyone regardless of license type now has access to the Outlook web app which actually has got some features um, that are, are better in some ways than the desktop one so a little feature I really like someone sends a message Uh, In the Outlook web app, you can just give it a thumbs up without having to do the whole thank you very much thing. Um, So key changes that people will notice were, of course, the new email address and then a single inbox that will stay with you for your NHS Scotland career. Uh, It's going to be a single mail directory for all of NHS Scotland users. So it should be easier to find people. And of course, you can find them in Teams or you can find them in um, an Outlook. Following the rollout of Teams and email, the next stage of the programme will be helping people to understand and use the new cloud storage available in OneDrive and SharePoint. And then the other uh, element, the other piece of the puzzle that we're going to be looking at uh, during the rest of this uh, financial year is the cloud storage. So that's uh, OneDrive and SharePoint that I alluded to earlier. Um, get, getting the sort of infrastructure set up so that we can use those uh, securely more widely um, so that, that we can begin to migrate to cloud storage uh, after that. One question that has been frequently asked by practice managers in particular has been what will happen about SMS systems that use the old NHS mail? For example, MJOG. Will MJOG be sorted by the 18th of December or do we need to plan for not having it? No, MJOG will be, I've, I've been given assurance MJOG will be completed by December the 18th. And so, to our main focus for the conference, and also this podcast, 
Yes, GPIT reprovisioning. There were two dedicated discussion workshops, a plenary session, as well as workshops from each of the three system suppliers. The very first workshop was hosted by the NSS team. Louise McTaggart, who was a long-time former Snug member and spoke to us in a previous podcast, is now the GPIT National Deployment Manager. She started off by giving us some background as to why we need to change GPIT systems, what the main steps are, and you'll hear some questions raised by Dr Bill Martin about the transfer of appointment systems and also potential difficulties faced by health board staff during the migration. So a little bit of background about why um, we're at where we're at just now. So why the change to GPIT systems? Um, like you, you've probably heard a bit about this project for a number of years. It's, it's taken a bit of time to get to where we're at. But the GPIT systems that were, were end of life, um, the environment needed to move to a much more modern um, platform and it was to move from it being hosted in each of the practices uh, to move to a managed technical service, so a hosted or a cloud type environment. So it was a national project um, that was commissioned by Scottish Government. The procurement approach was for a, a framework agreement um, and there was three suppliers that were selected um, and they were Vision, which are now uh, called Sedgidum. Emus Health and Eva Health Technologies, of which were previously known as Microtest. So there are several steps within the selection process, and I just have them bulleted here. So the formation of provisional cohorts, confirming what the cohort requirements are and who's in the cohorts, how they use the direct award or mini competition. Clarification of possible. You said about appointment templates not transferring across. Is that only if you're going from one system to the other? The vision are telling us that the um, it, it probably will be a lift and shift. That's what we've been under, what we understand of it's a vision to vision. So I, I don't expect that that'll have to be done. The only thing I was going to add about the EMIS to EMIS from my understanding to move from EMIS PCS to EMIS Web, you would probably, need, I think you would need to recreate the whole appointment system, you know, your templates, your sessions. So um, until we get further details from EMIS team on how that would migrate over, I think the expectation is that it's a, a recreate of the EMIS appointments book. So we could have a, a, a scenario where a health board pharmacist uh, is in, in practice A migrate now and practice B migrate in a year and a half's time. Has there been any thought of giving advice to areas about, uh, look, find out who in your area will be using the new system, migrate them all, move on to the next area? But you're absolutely right. The kind of part of the cohort planning, I think, is being the best approach for the geography of practices and the associated teams that work with those. We've talked before about having little videos about how do you do this, how do you do that, and people sort of getting trained before the system's there so that they can practice it. We need a real mixed economy. And it's a very interesting point I made about actually having the videos and everything up early so people can practice before they get uh, and see it before they actually get, you know, the, the system to, to have a look at. I think, Janet, it's yeah, a blend of things. Just in my view, there are different practices and, and different people within practices where different options suit them best and it needs to be flexible. The plenary session from Robert Hutton described the new system selection process with an emphasis on how to move to direct award when the first system becomes available. 
I'm Robert Hutton. I'm the uh, GPIT Read Provisioning Implementation Manager. So working with uh, Louise and Judith and all the, the members of the team that you have uh, probably met at different things um, to uh, bring the new GPIT systems to you and also working uh, with in, in concert with the three suppliers. So uh, today, the focus of this uh, is really about the, the process of moving into selection of the GPIT systems. We're very much focused on moving into a uh, direct award with the, the first um, supplier that becomes available. The process that I'm going to show is repeatable, whether it's later uh, at mini competition or now for direct award. Scotland's new GPIT systems are currently being developed by our three framework suppliers, Emus Health, Vision and Microtest. The video describes how new GPIT systems are being developed by three framework suppliers and will be tested and evaluated for use in Scotland. Once developed, the systems will be tested by national and local teams before being validated as approved Scottish Government systems that are available for use in Scotland. NHS in Scotland. Practices with common requirements will form cohorts and then agree selection criteria for choosing the new system. There could be direct award of a contract for a new system if it is judged to be ready ahead of the others, or there can be a mini competition when more than one is ready. Now, the other thing that that, that video uh, features heavily on mini competition, but the scenario that we're in just now is that there is a, a gap of not, not quite a year between the first supplier and the second supplier. This means that um, the, the opportunity to go into mini competition will only happen once there is a choice of uh, two suppliers. So prior to that, there is the opportunity to do a direct award. And that is uh, wh where we're at now. I'm going to have a look at the, the process that runs up to direct award and what's involved in that. After the selection process, a call-off contract will be awarded for a system to be supplied to that cohort of practices. The contract will last for seven years. So the, the position for each health board uh, varies. Some of them, their contracts extend well after the first system arrives and, and some expire sooner. So the position for each uh, NHS board is different and um, it's really a discussion between the health boards and the, 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 the GPs about when, when they move forward with the selection process. The NSS team is very keen to get boards and cohorts of GP practices set up and thinking about what they are going to need from the new system especially if anyone is going to try to go for the first new system which becomes available. So if we wish to see the first deployment of systems in summer of 2021, then it really is necessary for the, the NHS boards to engage now in the process if they want to be part of that. And, uh, and so that is the question that's before all of the boards and, and what we're discussing at the, uh, uh, at the meetings. The information that we need to gather uh, for this request for proposal, it's all about who are your practices, what kind of connections do they have, any software, additional software uh, that you wish to buy along with the, the, the core system and the software that you have already bought that's in your practices that you want to, to still work or that's used within the NHS board, uh, any um, you know, integrations with portals or anything like that or a community system that you may have. So um, if if it turns out you want to have any special integrations, that could take a while to work out the detail of what's involved there. So it's really important that we engage with you at the earliest opportunity. Now, if you're not going to be one of these boards that's, that's, that would look to be first, you can just still get started on this process. But one of the key things is going to be your 
scenarios that you want to see demonstrated. So there's there's uh, over 1,200 requirements, but not all of them are as important to everybody as, as others. So um, using scenarios, we'll be asking to see written, written descriptions of how the system will, will, will achieve certain tasks and then demonstrations for some of those scenarios as well. The technical and functional merit part of the scoring is the one where um, probably most of the differences between one system and, and the other will be picked up in evaluation. And some of the scenarios, uh, the idea is that um, other, other scenarios can be developed if they're important uh, to, to your um, cohort that you're part of. Docman 7 is also up for replacement. The scope for our project team has increased a little bit to look at the replacement of Docman 7. We're trying to think ahead about what will come next and what will work best with the centrally hosted GPIT systems. And the aim is to find uh, a replacement for Docman 7 that would be ready by October 2021 or sooner uh, if we can have that. And that's not to say that everybody's going to move across to it by then, certainly not, but that the first deployments might be possible um, for around about a year's time, or October 2021. At the same time, Scottish government have plans to have a centralised media repository. So it's really important that whatever we do fits with those plans as well. So the idea is instead of keeping documents all over the place, to keep the documents in one place that everybody can access and then spend less time uh, pushing them around and holding multiple, multiple copies of things. We moved into some questions. Dr Bina Rashford first. I suppose the obvious elephant in the room is um, we're in an inevitable situation of having a year between the suppliers being available to to decide, um, which means that that makes it difficult for health boards, practices, cohorts to choose. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. It's not really a a question. It's it's how do we square the circle? I, d- I don't know. It's it's a comment more than a question. I think we're all finding it incredibly difficult because there's such a big time scale difference between the two the two options here. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, Bina. It's not something that we have an answer to uh, as a as a project. We, we're just keen to to find you know groups of willing GPs and willing health boards to, to move forward with the process. Um, but yeah, I think that the position for every, every every health board is different, and there's a lot of thought going into that. Um, and we're just uh, trying to trying to support the process and hoping that we'll have a groups of GPs that want to move forward once we've got a system that's ready. Yeah, I I speak slightly naively about this, I suppose, Robert. Um, maybe that's a good thing. But um, I presume that when we're then uh, offering that choice. Um, we're not tying somebody into something which they can't get out of in the year later if something is better at that one year point. Now, all credit to the supplier who's managed to get it out there first, but um, it would seem um, unwise of us to then tie people into to potentially a prolonged process of going with another supplier if in one year's time something better was to come up, but we're all tied into the first one. Um, it would um, obviously be in some people's interest that you are, and it's definitely in other people's interest that you're not. It's a good question, Scott. I think the answer is uh, the honest answer is that this is a this is a choice uh, for the the length of the contract. So it isn't a choice for a year. It's a choice for a a seven year period. Um, so um, so therefore, one that has to be made carefully. Um, the the way that the 
like the, the T's and C's of the contract are, provided that suppliers continue to deliver the required changes and update their systems as as is required for you know the developments that are happening in in primary care and general practice, then the that the, the we stay with them, uh, having chosen the system. So it is a you know it is a, and and given the the tremendous effort that it takes to to move from one system to the next, um, and the fact that. Once the process is engaged, it's about two and a half year rollout process per supplier. So there isn't really resource to be going back and, and moving suppliers again back to, you know, a year later to a different system and uh, moving to the practices across again, because we're looking at a process now because the suppliers are starting at different times. And we anticipate there's roughly two and a half years rollout across Scotland per supplier. That uh, That's a sort of maybe a three and a half year rollout period now. So no, it is a it is a sort of a longer term choice, and therefore an important decision to get right. Sorry if that's not the answer you were hoping for, but it's the answer that I thought you were going to give. But it <laughs> has a lot of um, consequences, which people are then starting to put in. Yeah, look at the comments. Yeah, you're making a decision a year before you're even able to see the other product about something you don't know what it's going to be like to then be able to predict to make an informed choice. So I can address that last point. So you'll be seeing the finished product, okay? So um, right now, all that, what we just described there is about producing a request for proposal document. And then you see the demonstration. So I didn't really feature on that part of the process, but there's a um, there's a demo day where you get the written responses, which describes how the, the product will work. And then you see the demonstration that shows the finished product here. These are... You only get to market when you've passed the test. So you do know what you're getting from the suppliers. And but you're quite right. the, is that down to the individual GP level or is that at a board level? It's at a, a representative's level. So basically the, the participation rate... <laughs> I thought the point was that individual areas were meant to be able to choose what they wanted to do down to the general practice level. I thought that was the point. That's what I was saying, Scott. So it's well, the representatives of those general practices. We... Um, we anticipate probably about a participation of about one in three and one in four, one in four. So if you had a, a group of 100 practices, that they would have representatives from those practices. The, the group might be about 25 to 30 people that would be involved in that process. So it isn't down to a per practice level. But the idea is that practices would work together and send representatives um, who did represent those practices that were involved in that decision-making process. So it's not at a board level but um, practice rep practices would be represented but not necessarily every single practice that's the, the intention anyway but that's that's for discussion just how many um representatives there are you know per cohort okay um thanks rob <clears throat> um I, I think there's still a lot of thinking for health boards uh, to, to do here in terms of a the cohort formation process but also how they prioritise um, uh, going forward in terms of either waiting for the opportunity to have a competition or recognising that something needs to be done now because what we're, we're, we're working with um, is starting to creak. Anyway, um, we're going to move on if that's okay. So lots of issues raised there around delays in development, timing of system selection, the amount of say an individual practice might have in the whole process. And in the final discussion session, hosted by Dr. Keith Burns, there are lots of further interesting points. And you'll hear quite a few familiar voices. First of all, Dr. Ian Thompson. What are the key pieces of functionality that you currently utilise? And particularly that often might be in terms of the sort of user interface aspects of the system you've got. And try to think of those in a, a system agnostic way to say, what is it that I particularly want? So 
for example, some of the things I like in the system I've currently got, which I recognize isn't going to be the system I will have in the future, because clearly it will be a select, maybe a selection from one or other of the three potential candidates, depending on when each supplier manages to deliver. You know, the things I quite like are the ability to use problem based medical records, similar to um, the recommendation of a certain Larry Wall from the late 60s and 70s, you know, and, and the fact that I can then filter my medical history based on that problem uh, is a key thing that I find helps to make my job as a frontline GP very helpful. Um, and there are other features such as similar to that, that, you know, I would want in whatever new system was selected. Um, and I think one of the things that Snug could do to help is, is to help practices to think about what are the key things that make their GP and their practice staff's job easier in what they've got at the moment? And probably more to the point, what could make their job easier if it was changed slightly? You know, so how easy is it to develop either guidelines or templates or protocols or whatever you want to call them? The way IT should be done is it should be working around what we want to do rather than us working around what it wants to do. And that's often been a challenge in the past. Hopefully that viewpoint's helpful to others. The the biggest challenge beyond actually selecting a system, which is clearly absolutely critical, is that whole process of investing in implementation and, and support and training. And um, I, I suspect that health boards really need to get their heads around how they're going to do that irrespective of the system that they choose, because... I think a move from where we are to any of the three possible incumbents is going to be a fairly significant change process for everybody. Um, and and uh, my experience of, of implementing changes of systems across the health services invariably that it's done badly, it's not well supported, and people end up using um, the minimum level of functionality that gets them through the day rather than actually optimising the benefit of the system. So uh, I think it's really important whenever we're thinking about whatever system you choose um, to, to um, have a very clear evaluation process of the, of the support that the, the system provider is prepared to give you, but also that the health board feels it's capable of galvanising to, to deliver on the job. And I guess there's some role for the snug there, isn't there, in terms of, but that's going to be later on. Usually as, as users, we develop a user knowledge as, as we get experience with using things. Um, and these are all going to be by necessity rolled out over a, sh a relatively short period of time. And so the opportunity for sharing knowledge is, is going to be something that we'd be wanting to support, but it would be um, difficult um, because we haven't built up the the, the detailed knowledge that we, we have of the other systems, but um, that's going to be something that we can need to bear in mind. I, I suspect that health boards will want to, um, in the current economic climate, make sure that they get a best value product, which may not be the Rolls-Royce king of the road job. It might be the one that's uh, cheap enough to do the job. And, and um, that's, that's a potential risk for us in all of this because um, they certainly don't have uh, large bags of, of cash um, and I, I, I think perhaps that they they will be quite keen to hang on um, for um, a, a, a more competitive process 
uh, perhaps the one exception to that are boards that are absolute diehard um, Sejudem vision boards who may just say, oh, well, uh, probably the simplest route out of this is just to get on with it. But um, th- there's a potential financial risk in that, I suspect. Uh, Bill Martin. Hi, thanks, Keith. I'm, I'm trying to put a, a positive spin on some of these discussions that we're having just now. We've got time before we're going to be doing the mini competitions. And many people in this workshop and those that are virtually attending this conference will be involved in the setting up of the mini competitions uh, and advice at a national and a local level. So how can we empower them? How can we give them the information so that they can keep reminding, keep banging on at the health board about the importance of training, making sure that the funding is there, making sure the facilitators are in place? So we've got time before we're, we're coming to this. What can SNUG do as an organisation to uh, to promote this and influence the, the the scoring system for training and any selection? Well, it should hopefully be included in the scoring and evaluation criteria. But it's it's important that, as you say, it's it's brought up the list because um, many many organisations consider that as a one-off um, problem, whereas actually it's an ongoing problem with new staff joining and with with how you implement the more complicated functions of a system, isn't it? Um, it's 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 not just a uh, get it over and done with. So if if it's a bit bad, then we'll just put up with that. Yeah. Um, so Ian again. I, I was just going to come back on Bill's point. I think that's a very valid point, Bill, that um, SNUG certainly has, could have a, a strong role in empowering grassroots users to feed into the uh, creation of um, key criteria that might be used in the um, selection process um, to make sure that their cohort feels that the key things that that cohort needs are in there um, and I think it, this is about looking at you know the important requirements in a system agnostic way that that people will need and I think there is definitely a role for SNUG and it's um, the members within SNUG to help local uh, GPs to um, frame that in, in, a, in an appropriate way that will be listened to um, and I think again the, there's role for SNUG and others um, in the more the wider um, Scottish Digital Health and Care Network to emphasise to the technical e-health leads, the, the people who are helping to deliver this from health board level, the need for this sort of support, as well as obviously for people like myself to emphasise this to colleagues in Scottish Government in primary care division about how important um, in order to achieve their aims of service change and service reform, that they need to make sure that they are enabling the staff to make best use of the systems that are going to be available to us. Yeah, um, I think the important thing to remember also is that um, we're not starting with a blank sheet here. Um, The reprovisioning team have already done a lot of work around pulling together the criteria upon which a cohort might choose to evaluate these systems. What's important, I think, for um, cohorts and and, and users at at the grassroots level is to to 
make some sort of judgment around the priority of of, of the things that are being assessed. And so, um, if it's looking like you might be ending up with a uh, with a systems um, provider change, the support um, aspects of that matrix of of weighting uh, are 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 weighted in in, in favour of the the sort of the change management processes, the support, the training. The, the, the difficulty is in a selection process um, for a cohort, you are evaluating what the service provider is going to give you. Um, it's not going to evaluate what the health board are prepared to do um, once the, the, the deal is done and, and, and the, the service provider feels that they have done their bit, you know, for, for up to a year after the system has been installed or whatever. And in the past, um, obviously, health boards invested fairly heavily in facilitators, and we still have a facilitator network across Scotland. Um, and and I, 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 I would hope that health boards recognise the real value of that very local um, point of contact, that very local support. Um, we, we certainly need to be encouraging health boards to to tool up again in that way to enable practices to to get the best out of, out of a, what will be a painful change process, I suspect. Yeah, I think the other thing that we should be doing is passing kind of user-based information to the users um, and encouraging them to actually get involved because uh, I suppose with the best will in the world, as Robert said earlier, uh, at best there's going to be one in four practices represented around the cohort table. Um, and then once you dilute that further with the multiple finance, e-health, um, and all the other bodies that um, were discussed. Uh, actually, how much how much of a say does the individual GP practice have in the actual outcome? Uh, and I suppose I've got real concerns of that. And people do have to kind of know that you could well put this forward with all the best will in the world, and uh, everybody else that's health board based has already made the decision. Um, and I suppose we need to kind of get out there and encourage people to actually um, shake that up a bit and just actually say yes that this is a system for. GP and although it's primary care use the people that will be sitting in front of it 70 hours a week will be us. Uh, hi there and um, I'd like to thank Neil there I'm a facilitator with NHS Fife working with um, Sharon Wishart's team and I'd like to thank you very much Neil for recognising that we have such a huge role to play here to try and help and support you all Um within NHS Fife we're mainly an EMIS based health board um, with Definitely. yes thank you very much I'm reminded of a, of a practice manager who started at a small practice um, in, in an area I used to work in um, and turned up and, and uh, within a few weeks said what well, I've heard a few good things about this vision thing could we just possibly switch over to that and the IT facilitator just exploded in front. no 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 you cannot just switch <laughs> it's not that easy a phrase yes we do we do need to make sure that we get this right because this is going to be something uh, that we the that we need to um, be, be committed to for a long while. Yeah, grand. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for, for attending, and thank you very much to all of those you have contributed. The first virtual snug conference was very successful. It was organised mainly by our business manager, Alex DeFranco, with lots of help from Les Elder. This is what Alex made of the day. So, so to go over last week, it was just to kind of get your thoughts about it. I mean, were you pretty pleased with how things went? Yeah, I was really pleased. I thought it was excellent. Um, all the feedback we've had is really positive as well. Um, and we've had a call to have another one next year. Uh, oh, what, another virtual one? 
Yes. So having the face to face, hopefully, fingers crossed, May, and then another virtual meeting in sort of November time. Oh, wow. Well, so, so, so tell me, how were you feeling on Tuesday, five to nine, whenever Neil was just about to start? Very pleased um, that there was such a good response, but nervous because I couldn't be there in person. I couldn't run about and make sure that everything was well. I had to just try and ensure it went as well as I could from where I was. <laughs> and I mean, once we got the meeting started, it went really smoothly, I thought. It did. I thought it was really good um, having a virtual conference. It was fantastic. It meant we could have people that could possibly not attend normally from Shetland and Borders, you know, these were faces that we haven't been able to see for a couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, having 20 workshops, that was incredible, yes. you know, and, and trying to make yes. sure all the speakers got into the right meeting hall at the right time and then shared their screens and get it all recorded. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, plates in the air, let's say. There was, um, you know, we, we did have some teething problems. Of course, we didn't realise that external uh, speakers wouldn't have as much access as those that were NHS male, but we found a way around that. And um, going forward for next year, we would hope to have a better solution for that. But we found our way around it and it worked out well. And at least we know we can do it now. Yeah, that's it. I need a year to recover, though. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, have a, have a nice break. And you do deserve a rest after all that work. Thank you. So really well done to Alex, Les, Neil, David and everyone else who contributed to making the first Snug virtual conference a big success. I'm sure there will be more to come. Bye for now. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. 